Okay, we're going to get started. I believe Dr. Angela Cristiano needs no introduction, but I'm going to give her a little introduction. Uh, she got her bachelor's from Rutgers, a master's in microbiology and molecular genetics also at Rutgers, and her PhD at uh, UMDNJ. And currently, she has a lot of titles here. She is the Director of Basic Science Research in the Department of Dermatology and the Richard and Mildred Rodebeck Professor of Dermatology and Genetics and Development, as well as the Vice Chair for Basic Science Research in Dermatology and the Director of the Center for Human Genetics and the Co-Director of the Center for Skin and Mucosal Biology in the School of Dental Medicine. The overall goal of Dr. Cristiano's research program is to understand the molecular mechanisms of epidermal growth and differentiation by studying how these processes are perturbed in human skin diseases and their mouse counterparts. Her more recent work, and what she's doing with us, has focused on defining the genetic basis of polygenic disorders such as alopecia areata using genome-wide approaches and her more recent discoveries linking the genetics of alopecia to type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and celiac uh, disease. And those of us uh, taking care of patients in the Berry Center now are much more specifically and aggressively asking our patients about alopecia. And as you'll hear from Angela, it's an extremely difficult disease that patients often don't admit to, have to be asked a few times. And the concordance is, we'll find out a little more uh, now through the type 1 diabetes exchange, probably is going to approach that of type 1 and celiac, might be somewhere in the order of 4 to 5 percent. So stay tuned to that part. Today, uh, Angela will talk to us about the common genetics between alopecia areata and type 1 diabetes. Good morning. Uh, can you hear me? I'm going to take this off so it doesn't make noise. Thank you for having me back. Um, it's great to be here. I think this is the third time I've spoken about alopecia and a little bit about diabetes in this room, but never to this audience. So I'm thrilled to have the chance to tell you what we're doing um, and to certainly get your feedback. I confess right up front I'm extremely new to the whole field and still on my learning curve, very much so. So I hope that you'll bear with me if, I, um, if I'm not totally accurate on my diabetes. <laughs> so about a year ago, I guess now, coming up in the summer, um, our lab published a first genome-wide association study uh, on a disease called alopecia areata and um, led us down a road that brings me here today, uh, full of surprises so far. So uh, the disease is, um, can be characterized sort of like this. Uh, usually it starts with patches of hair loss uh, that appear on the scalp, um, sometimes on the beard uh, in males. 
um, can appear as patches of white hair uh, sometimes because alopecia areata preferentially attacks pigmented follicles. When the dark follicles fall out, it leaves behind a patch of white hair, so sometimes it can show up like this. Uh, the patterns can be different. This is called an ophiasis pattern or a snaking pattern where the hair loss moves around the scalp. Uh, and it can progress to complete alopecia totalis, which is what we refer to as hair loss on the whole head, or universalis, which is loss of hair on the whole body. Um, so most patients have a patchy form like this. Only about 10% progress to this form. This is very intractable to treatment, uh, but these forms, uh, the standard of care uh, currently is uh, intralesional steroid injections, uh, and not much else is available for these patients. Uh, the patch in the middle here is me, so the reason that we work on this disease is because I also have it. So um, I, I blame Columbia in part for that. It was shortly after I moved here in 1995 that my hair fell out for the first time. Uh, so this is my own alopecia areata. I have a cousin with alopecia universalis, so it's probably not a shock uh, that this might happen to me too. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it was this that really uh, galvanized our lab to move into hair genetics almost 15 years ago now. So when this work began, um, the the pathognomonic finding on histology of alopecia areata is something called a swarm of bees histology. So these are longitudinal sections down the middle of a hair follicle. And uh, when a pathologist looks at a slide like this and they see these T cells swarming the hair follicle base, uh, this is called a swarm of bees. And that's about uh, all that's known at the time um, about the histology. Uh, often it's not even biopsied for diagnosis. Almost always the diagnosis is made clinically. So it's even rarer these days to, uh, to get a biopsy. What I'd like to tell you today, though, is how we've begun to untangle the genetics of the disease uh, and a little bit about uh, some of the immunology that we're doing now uh, in collaboration with others here at Columbia. So um, this is a hair follicle. Normally, you should not see uh, uh, T cells all over the base of the hair follicle like you do here. Uh, and so what I'd like to tell you today is how the genetics has sort of led us to begin to understand how and why this may be happening. So just to put it in context for you, you're used to thinking about a disease that I think affects about half a million people. Um, alopecia areata is actually the most prevalent autoimmune disease by far, affecting more than all of these grouped together. So it's an extraordinarily common disease, and yet uh, because it's non-lethal, because it's um, uh, really, and some people would say non-life-threatening, um, it doesn't near, get nearly the attention, of course, as some of the other diseases that have much more severe uh, physical findings. Nonetheless, those who have it, especially the severe form, and especially in children, uh, find it extremely distressing, and certainly it's far beyond a cosmetic disease. Nonetheless, uh, it's been a challenge to raise funds uh, for hair genetics for a long time, uh, but hopefully that tide will be turning. Um, so among skin diseases, there are several reports that try to quantitate the burden of skin diseases to patients, and alopecia areata actually is right at the top of that list. Um, because it is so visible and because it's usually on the scalp, it's in a place where it's uh, open, really, for the world to see. But despite all of this, uh, the, the need and the burden in skin diseases, uh, there is absolutely no evidence-based treatment for alopecia areata. So there's a Cochrane study that looked back at what had been done over the years. Um, there's never even been a proper 
proper clinical trial conducted for intralesional steroids. So to say they work um, is, um, is a bit of an overstatement. Everyone uses it, but it's actually never been proven. So um, there's a vast need for uh, proper therapeutic trials in this disease. So again, 15 years ago when we started this work, um, uh, I was just a new assistant professor. There was no human genome sequence. There was no HapMap, no SNPs, uh, no patient registry. Not a lot to start with. I had one technician and a very small budget, and uh, AA genetics was a daunting task uh, at that time. So we took a step back in my lab and really started to ask, um, can we gain traction into hair diseases by studying outliers, by studying rare families around the world who had unusual forms of hair loss caused by a single gene? Uh, and so we've done that now for many years. We've made some progress identifying single genes that underlie different forms of hair loss. Um, but all along, our goal really was to come back to LP Shariata to approach it uh, as a polygenic trait. Uh, and it took us really all that time to not only raise the money to do it, but also to set up a patient registry to collect the number of samples needed to do the work. So a registry was founded with NIAM's support about 10 years ago, and we now have over 3,000 patients. It's going to close this October, so we're hopeful that we can at least get that number uh, up to or just over 3,000, uh, and that will probably be the last chance we have to, uh, to do any sampling. But, um, but again, when we started this work, uh, it wasn't even so clear in the literature that alopeciariata was genetic, and so before embarking on a study like this, it was sort of important to prove to ourselves that, um, that the trait was actually inherited. So one of the key clues to, uh, to that is actually the high heritability in family members, so about 10% um, of affected individuals have a first-degree relative who also have alopeciariata. Um, concordance in twins, so monozygotic twins have about 50% or so concordance, uh, again, which gives us strong indication that there is a genetic component. Um, but again, 50% don't, so there's a question there even of uh, what's causing the rest of this. Um, is it just genetic or is there more to the story? Um, it's highly prevalent, so again, this speaks to a common polygenic disease. It can be present early in life, so the idea that there's a spectrum of severity that sometimes can come on early. And also, I think most compellingly, uh, many before us were doing candidate gene association studies, taking a page from other autoimmune diseases where these genes had come up in the literature and asking just on a gene-by-gene -gene basis were any of these associated with alopecia areata. And by doing that, you would get associations of 1.2 or modest associations in a small number of patients. But nonetheless, it seemed like uh, some of this work was leading towards support for a genetic basis. So the methods available, uh, again, when we started were largely uh, linkage, and so um, we approached this problem initially with the tools we knew how to work with. Uh, so we collected about 50 families in which to do linkage. They were multiplex families where more than three people were affected with alopecia areata. Uh, and using that approach, um, a few years ago, we published a first linkage study that identified four different locations in the genome. Um, but again, our goal always was to come back and do a genome-wide association study uh, using a case control design, so about 1,000 cases versus 1,000 controls. Uh, and again, when you use these two techniques together, you're really asking two different questions, and so they tend to be complementary, and if you're very lucky, you actually find some genes that are identified by both. Um, most 
nicely illustrated by, for example, macular degeneration, where their linkage studies coincided beautifully with their GWAS. So again, the approaches are different. Linkage uses a small number of families where more than one person is affected. They look like this. Uh, and a GWAS uses, again, a case control uh, cohort where you're looking at the frequencies of alleles in affected individuals versus unaffected individuals. And you basically look for skewing um, of the allele frequency. So in a control population, these two alleles might be 1,600 and 400. And you look for over underrepresentation of that same allele uh, in a disease group. And you can see something like that here. So um, again, the, the goals of these two approaches are slightly different, uh, but at the end of it, uh, the goal is really to identify um, a candidate gene who, after sequencing, would give you um, a causal relationship uh, to, um, to the disease. So linkage almost always leads you in that direction. Association almost leads you always not in that direction. And again, the goal now of using some of the higher techniques of, of deep sequencing are to sort of bridge this gap uh, and be able to derive causal information from association studies. So I'll just take you quickly through the history of how we did this. So we started again with those small family-based studies using linkage, and I'll show you how the evidence for a genetic basis grew as we neared uh, genome-wide association. So our first study was uh, in collaboration with colleagues at Hadassah University in Israel. Um, again, you can see these are nice pedigrees. We had seed funding for this from the National LP Shariata Foundation, uh, without which we probably would not have gotten a start. Um, the linkage at first, again, was very rough. So here are some signals. Linkage cutoff should be anything above three. So you see one signal coming here. Um, for this type of disease, a little more forgiving would put a lot score between 1.5 and 2. So you can see there's some evidence here for a few lower level peaks. But at the end of our first study, again, we had some evidence, but uh, I wouldn't call it overwhelming uh, evidence. Of course, this is the HLA region, which gives the strongest signal with whatever we use. Uh, but this one actually is one that uh, seemed respectable at the time. We then expanded this type of work, and then instead of using microsatellites, we saturated with more dense markers. So now we're doing linkage with SNPs. The cohort got a little bigger. This is now after the registry had been formed uh, in the early 2000-2002. Uh, um, and so you can see these are very nice multiplex pedigrees with numerous people affected. And when we do that, covering now with SNP markers, uh, you can see, uh, again, some evidence for some of these genes coming up uh, even with more significance. And so when we add the first scan to the second, there was actually some nice overlap, uh, especially this one whose significance increased a lot when we um, increased the, the power of the cohort. And you can see these numbers getting higher, adding to our confidence for linkage. When we switch to association, um, again, now this is a completely different approach. This is the case control design. Um, to do this type of work, we finally, after nine tries getting an R01 to do this, uh, succeeded in getting a first R01 to do the association study. Um, and so this took a while. But nonetheless, we began with um, a case, uh, a case uh, group of about 1,000 patients. We deliberately chose a mix of all forms of disease. So we didn't want to skew the results in one way or another by choosing all severe or all mild. So this group was mixed uh, with these numbers. And the controls were shared with us by Peter Gregerson out at North Shore, who helped us with all of our genotyping. Um, and he gave us uh, the New York City Cancer Project data set. All of these were matched 
for Northern European ancestry using AIMS or ancestry informative markers uh, that actually were able to very nicely stratify for Northern European extraction. So at first we just did about 250 cases using association. This is called a Manhattan plot, not because we work here in Manhattan, but because the geneticists think that these look like buildings and that these look like smokestacks. And so each one of these is a chromosome. So chromosome 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, et cetera, all the way down to the end. The red line here is statistical significance. So for this study, this was 5 times 10 to the minus 7. So anything that crosses this are SNPs that show a significant association with disease. This blue one, of course, again, just for reference, is HLA. So, um, but excitingly for us, we began to see uh, peaks that were crossing uh, into this um, region of statistical significance. So again, when we added our first GWAS, now we've got linkage evidence combined with genetic uh, association study evidence. Uh, and you can see things starting to gain focus, converge a little bit between the linkage and the association. And finally, when we were able to expand this now to our 1,000 patient cohort uh, is when things got um, really interesting. So again, the cases came uh, from the registry. The controls came from the cancer project. We used the Illumina SNP array, um, had relatively stringent uh, criteria for inclusion of SNPs. Uh, after those cleanup, uh, we were left with about 1,055 uh, and genotyped them with about 460,000 SNPs to do the, the actual genome-wide association. And then again, when we add that, and I'll go through this in detail, uh, you can see the evidence got uh, even better. So this is the analysis of the 1,000 cases. In this case, we used 3,000 controls. So there's um, some thought in the literature now that by doubling or tripling your number of controls, you can actually strengthen the signals, and that turned out to be true for us. But the really nice thing was a lot of that noise went away, and our signals became very focused. And so um, it's a little hard to see the green ones, but there are actually eight regions where we crossed the threshold for statistical significance. Again, this large blue one is HLA. Um, this one is one that I'll talk about that was a complete surprise. This is the ULBP gene cluster, uh, and this is the co-stimulatory genes on chromosome 2 CTLA4. So uh, immediately you can see that all three of our top peaks that are, um, are immune targets. So we'll talk about that. So in a nutshell, uh, this is our hit list. So everything below the line is in the HLA region down here. Everything above the line are autosomal genes that came up. Uh, again, this is the, uh, the uh, p-values here. These are the odds ratios. So again, for a genome-wide association study, these tend to hover in the range of 1.1, 1.3. So all of these were certainly uh, within the range of what others were seeing. In the HLA, you always see these higher um, significance uh, ratios, as you see here. But again, for us, it was encouraging because this work actually replicated what others had already seen in the alopecia areata literature. So again, um, just going from the top, CTLA4, ICOS, and CD28 reside in a region that we'll talk about uh, later uh, in a cluster on chromosome 2. The IL-221 locus, uh, again, has been well characterized in autoimmune diseases. This one is the, the new one. So these are the ULPP genes that are on 6Q, the second highest peak in our study. Uh, and I'll talk a lot more about these as we go through 
Um, IL-2RA or CD25 uh, is well known to you, of course, because it's one of your lead genes in type 1 diabetes. Uh, and these other three, um, Syntaxin 17 and PRDX5, were of interest to us, especially because those are the ones that were found in the hair follicle. And so we were very encouraged that some of the genes that came up on this list were actually ones who could explain maybe the participation of the end organ in either initiating or helping to potentiate the disease. Uh, we initially thought that these would also be in the immune system, but I'll show you evidence that even though they are immune genes, their expression is actually in the hair follicle. Um, and I won't talk much about EOS today, but again, ERB-B3 is a, um, a locus that's known, well known in type 1 diabetes. But what was not known all this time is that there's a new gene right next door to ERB-B3 called EOS that's on the same haplotype block and about a year ago was shown to uh, partner with FOXP3 in differentiation and lineage determination of regulatory T cells. So for years it was thought that the signal was coming from ERB3 at this locus. I think there's equally plausible evidence to say that EOS should be considered a strong candidate gene on this haplotype block. And again, it's a newcomer, so, um, so I think a lot more work needs to be done uh, on that one. So those are our cast of characters, and again, I'll, I'll touch on a few of them and tell you a little bit about what we're doing. Um, so the haplotype structures look like this. That's impossible to see, I realize, just to give you a sense of um, what we're looking at. These red triangles here represent uh, a haplotype block, and that just means a chunk of DNA that segregates together. Is there a buzz at me? Is that better? Okay. Um, a haplotype is a chunk of DNA that segregates together in the genome and doesn't usually recombine. So you can pretty much guess that a marker that shows up on a haplotype block uh, will represent the entire block structure, and that's a principle that we use a lot in these type of studies. So let's zoom in. Uh, this is the CTLA-4 region, the co-stimulatory genes on chromosome 2. Um, again, the blue shading here represents SNPs of statistical significance. So you can see there are at least two haplotypes, a blue one and a yellow one here. Most of the signal is coming squarely from CTLA-4. Not a lot of evidence for uh, a signal here or here. Um, uh, so uh, there is some literature now to say that SNPs in these two flanking genes actually control splicing at CTLA-4, but at least most of the association looks like it comes directly from CTLA-4 itself. This is the IL-221 locus on chromosome 4. Again, this one's widely uh, studied and known to you in type 1 diabetes. Most of the signals coming from IL-21, but again, it's because these are on the same block, it's impossible really to discriminate uh, which one of these is providing the signal without doing further uh, deep sequencing. This is, of course, the HLA cluster. It needs no introduction here. You can see these p-values are close to 10 to the minus 40, so there's very strong evidence here. Um, at least two haplotypes, a yellow one and a blue one, and probably several more. So I think it's pretty uh, clear that HLA uh, is here to stay in Alopeciariata. And this one was really the surprise to us. Uh, this is the ULBP3 cluster. These genes are confusingly named. In the mouse, they're called RAET genes. In the human, they're called ULBP genes. There are six of them in this cluster, and the thinking is that this cluster arose by a duplication event of the MHC on chromosome 6P on the other arm. Um, most of our signal is coming here. This one's called ULBP6 in the human. Um, but you can see, again, that the strength of the signal is very, very high. So this is like 10 to the minus 17. 
Um, but what was shocking to us is that this locus has never come up before in another autoimmune disease. And so uh, this one really seems to be, at this point at least, unique to alopecia areata. And so we've spent quite a bit of time on that one. Uh, chromosome 9, again, has an interesting gene for us in taxon 17. This is one of the two hair follicle-specific genes. What's interesting about it is it controls uh, pigmentation, at least in some uh, mammals, especially horses. So lipins on our stallions have a mutation in syntaxin 17 that causes them to be white or gray. Uh, and if you think about the graying uh, phenomenon in the hair that alopecia preferentially attacks the dark follicle, uh, we hope that syntaxin 17 will have some lessons for us in terms of identifying uh, target uh, potentially melanocyte antigens that help target the immune response to those cells. And I won't talk about that one uh, much more today. Sorry, I went the wrong way, did I? Um, okay, this is PRDX5, peroxyredoxin 5. Um, this one is interesting because it's um, an antioxidant enzyme. Uh, we didn't think much of it until about six months ago. A paper came out where someone expressed this gene in the pancreas and beta cells and showed that uh, overexpression of it actually protects against streptozoides that induce type 1 diabetes. So um, that one's called PRDX4. It's a close cousin of this one, uh, but at least it uh, places this gene, and it's highly expressed in the hair follicle, in the sort of column of looking at hair follicle or end organ-specific effects. So. Um, and this is the ERB3 locus. Again, it's always been thought that the signal's coming from ERB3. This is EOS, the new gene that was recently identified to be involved in regulatory T cells. So again, I think it's um, worth taking a second look at this block to see, uh, once this is deep sequenced, where exactly the variants are coming from. So one interesting thing that we wanted to look at right away was, is there sort of a uh, a very crude way of asking if the patients with more severe disease actually carry more risk alleles. And so um, the gray bars are, are control individuals, and you can see they have the highest, the, least, the lowest number of risk alleles here. Uh, these are risk alleles just running from 1 to 18. The blue bar is patients with patchy disease. The red bars are patients with severe disease. And I think you can just get a flavor for the fact that the patients with the more severe disease actually carry higher number of risk alleles overall. And that's something that uh, we're hoping to follow up on. Again, it's impossible to make a statement based on 1,000 patients, but at least it looks like there's a little trend uh, going here that we will follow up with the next 2,000 patients. So we wanted to start to think about these genes in terms of um, where they're acting, but also what they're like, and importantly, what they're not like. And so for years, um, we, meaning the alopecia field, had expected fully that our genes would line up uh, almost entirely with the other skin autoimmune diseases, which for us are mainly psoriasis and vitiligo. Um, and if you ignore the, the things down here, which are again HLA common to everything, um, we were very struck to find only two genes that overlapped uh, with these two diseases. And again, these are sort of uh, general culprits, so it's you know, it's, CT, it's uh, CD25, IL-2, and IL-2 receptor. So not very much um, evidence for sort of an organ-specific association. We were very disappointed by that at first um, because, uh, again, we are sort of the third comers in skin biology. These guys have had a head start on us for years, and vitiligo just published their GWAS a few months before us, but alopecia areata is basically the third skin disease to go through GWAS if we don't count atopic dermatitis, and they have a gene that has a massive effect, so we don't count them as a GWAS uh, <laughs> 
Um, they basically have one major gene and a few minor genes, and that's the end of their story. Um, so we're the third in line, basically, in skin. And so uh, everyone was sort of waiting to see how we were going to fit uh, with our colleagues. And so uh, we felt very left out initially when we found this result because um, we have great friends in these camps, and they were very willing to help us. But unfortunately, uh, it wasn't meant to be. Um, so what was interesting, though, of course, to those of you sitting here, uh, is what we did look like. And so we quickly got over our uh, sadness about not looking like a skin disease when we realized what great company we were in. And so if you look down these columns, you can see that we have extraordinary degrees of overlap with you, <laughs> with type 1 diabetes, with rheumatoid arthritis, and especially with celiac disease. And this was, I must say, quite a shock for us because we had not been thinking along these lines really uh, at all. Um, no one, I think, could have predicted that, uh, that we would wind up overlapping with these diseases, but uh, that again was a shock, but has been probably the most exciting part of this journey was sort of reorienting ourselves with, uh, with this group of diseases. So I'll talk a little bit um, about some of the celiac work at the end, but of course now I want to sort of drill down uh, and think about uh, what this all might mean. And so it, of course, prompts the question immediately is what's common about these diseases at the genetic level, but also uh, in terms of pathogenesis. Um, and so what we came to understand, again, very early is that, as I'll show you, uh, all of these diseases are actually linked by um, a common finding, at least, uh, uh, that I'll talk about involving the NKG2D receptor. So I just want to go back and give you a flavor for how deep this overlap goes. Um, Lynn Patukova, who's an epidemiology student in my lab and did the GWAS, uh, has now gone back through the type 1 diabetes literature and compared to our own. You'll notice here we, uh, we dropped our significance a little bit. So we're counting uh, 5,000 of our SNPs and comparing them to uh, basically the entire set of type 1 diabetes literature. The reason is that we only have 1,000 patients genotyped. So we went easy on ourselves and dropped our significance to 10 to the minus 3 while maintaining statistical significance high uh, in these studies because that's been what's published. So this is really not to prove significance. It's just to give you a flavor for the substructure of the genetic architecture, meaning if we drop significance and look for the signals that we hope will come up as we add more alopecia patients, uh, 40 genes actually show up that overlap between alopecia and type 1 diabetes. Um, so this is striking. Of course, the ones with the red stars are not just the same gene, but the exact same SNP. Uh, in some cases, two SNPs uh, in some of these genes. So um, I think it's fair to say that uh, we've done this also with celiac and with RA, and uh, the number is far less. It's between 10 and 20. So there's no question that our most significant overlap uh, is with you. <laughs> so again, this is something that we're now hoping to uh, untangle more. And if we run those genes through uh, some of the computational programs to group them in terms of pathway, you can see that almost all of them uh, line up in uh, one or other immune process, as you see here. So no surprises, I think, on that list. Just to close out the genetics before we go on, um, of course we want to get up to 10,000 patients. I don't know if we'll get there again. Our registry is closing this year. Uh, we have done a replication study now and we're just working through it, but it looks like many of our genes have been upheld in the replication. And one of the things we'd like, of course, to do is not just a meta-analysis of the literature like we did, but an actual joint analysis of the data comparing ours to the many type 1 diabetes data sets and celiac and RA. 
Um, and I'll talk now a little bit more about what we're actually doing on the functional side to try and dig deeper uh, into these findings, and at the very end touch on uh, a little bit of how we're thinking about clinical trials. So again, when we came up with this finding of uh, linking ourselves to the other three diseases, we went back in the literature and tried to ask what we might have in common. And so it took a while, <laughs> but eventually, um, through sort of reading and bumping our heads a little bit, we discovered that in all three diseases, uh, there's a report of overexpression of an NKG2D ligand, uh, in this case, um, MIC-A ligands, um, and in this case, an RAE1 ligand, so that's one of the ULBP genes, in all three of the end organs of these three diseases. Um, and so, because one of our highest hits was, remember, the ULBP3 region, and ULBP3 is an NK ligand of a different class, but uh, of this class, not a MIC-A ligand, we decided to say to ourselves, would it be possible that we see overexpression of um, this ligand in an alopecia hair follicle, um, suggesting maybe that the overexpression of these ligands might help to induce disease. So. I don't know if you can see that very well. This is um, a control individual's hair follicle. Uh, the blue is just Dappy showing you the outline of the cells. Um, the red staining that you see here on the bottom is ULBP3 staining in the normal hair follicle. And so normally uh, we would want these, oh, thank you. <laughs> normally we want these ligands to be off. So uh, these are danger signals that help to attract immune cells to a damaged or injured organ. And so it's uh, we hope that they would be off in the normal state. Um, these are lesional hair follicles from patients with alopecia areata, and I think you can appreciate here there's a dramatic upregulation of this marker at the very outermost layer of the hair follicle. So if you were thinking of where you would want to express it to attract immune cells, this is exactly where you'd want to put it. This is uh, essentially the interface between the hair follicle and the rest of the dermis where those dermal infiltrating T cells, the swarm of bees, actually come in. So this is just a close-up. Here are the cells attacking the base of this follicle. Uh, here is the ULBP3 upregulation. This layer is called the dermal sheath. Uh, and here you see it's not present uh, in this place in a control individual. So um, we've done this now for a number of patients. We compared it to a number of other um, autoimmune diseases and also other skin inflammatory diseases, and this finding is not common, not shared with psoriasis, not shared with anything else that we looked at. So it does seem to be, at this point at least, uh, specific to us. And so it gave us a different way of looking at the list because we had assumed these genes were sort of immune genes, which of course they are, but they're actually being expressed in the hair follicle. So another paper in the literature uh, which came out also shows upregulation of MIC-A, another NKG2D ligand, in alopecia hair follicles. So I think it's an interesting crossover because even though these are immune players, their site of expression is actually on the end organ, so explaining, I think, why some of these infiltrating cells are going to where they're going. So. Um, the question is, though, if ULBP3 is present on the follicle, uh, can we find NKG2D, its receptor, present on those incoming T cells? And so again, these are some follicles showing overexpression of ULBP3, uh, and the key question really is here. When we look at that infiltrate, um, we show here their T cells, we show here in red, importantly, that they are full of NKG2D, uh, and when we overlay that, you can see that um, that uh, this ULBP3 ligand seems to be uh, attracting and or engaging um, these T cells that are bearing the receptor uh, to which this ligand binds. 
So, so this slide marks um, where we were about a year ago, and uh, it's significant for a number of reasons. Um, again, before last year, I think it wasn't really known uh, what that swarm of bees was doing or what those cells were, uh, were, were expressing. But our work, I think, for the first time really showed that um, these may be uh, special cells that, in fact, are armed with a receptor that's being drawn to the hair follicle by uh, this particular ligand. And so it's also significant because um, it was about the time that I worked up the nerve with MIMO's help and encouragement to um, approach Raphael Kleins here at Columbia in the Department of Medicine to work with us on this project because it was really a crossroads for us. At this point, we could have just washed our hands and said, well, this has been fun, but we're going to go figure out another GWAS disease, another skin disease, maybe pemphigus, maybe something else, uh, something we're safe with, something in our comfort zone, or are we going to try and do a little more with this uh, and at least try to build a bridge to um, an immunology colleague lab where we could begin to do some shared work. And so um, Dr. Kleins was very welcoming. We sort of crash landed in his lab, and he's been very patient with us ever since. And so uh, it's been almost a year now, but the slides I'll show you now are, are from uh, the thinking that's come out of this collaboration, which has, of course, now begun to expand a little bit to uh, others on the campus. So the notion really is the model we're working with is that there must be some attractant in the hair follicle, which again I just showed you, ULBP3 and 6. IL-15 is also expressed in the alopecia mouse model. So we, we use a mouse that's called C3H. It's the comparison mouse to your NOD. Uh, it's a, a polygenic mouse that gets alopecia areata, but not as nicely as NOD. Only about 15% of C3H mice get sick. Um, so it's not nearly as tractable a model. But nonetheless, both IL-15 and some of the ULBP3s are expressed in the mouse skin. Um, and again, these can serve as attractants for NKG2D-bearing cells. Um, uh, again, many of our genes fall into uh, the pathways that regulate and or specify some of these different cells. Um, but this is a complicated immune response as we've begun to figure out. Um, and again, these are the cells whose staining I showed you. Uh, Raphael's lab has now looked at the skin of the AA mouse, the C3H mouse, and shown that those same cells are actually present uh, in the skin of the mouse, as you see here compared to here, uh, giving, again, us nice correlation, uh, but a clear indication that these are special cells being attracted by that ligand. And here you can see evidence just from the literature. Uh, this is our hair follicle with these cells. This is an islet uh, in type 1 diabetes from the literature, also showing expression of these ligands and infiltrate with um, CD8 and NKG2D bearing cells. So commonalities we're hoping will go deeper than just the genetics and actually lead us to function. So with all of this coming out, of course, it prompts us to think about therapy. Uh, already the genes give us some idea of where we might be looking. Um, and so. This is from a patient conference, but one thing we might like to do is try and uh, get rid of that ULBP3 staining in the skin um, and or getting rid of those T cells. I should mention that um, I couldn't help but biopsy my scalp when we found this result <laughs> in a place where my hair's grown back. And of course, we all know where exactly our spots were, so we took it from an exact place where our spot was. And I fully expected to see no ULBP3 staining there. And sure enough, it's bright as day. <laughs> so I still have, at least me, N of one, uh, very bright staining of my NKG2D ligand in my hair follicles in a region where the hair's grown back, but there's no T cell infiltrate. So 
Um, this fascinates me, of course, and it's something we're going to pursue. Uh, it's difficult to get a patient to give you a biopsy once their hair's grown back, but nonetheless, <laughs> we hope to be able to do that. But it does give us the sense that somehow these genes get stuck on, and they really shouldn't be there. But I think it also explains why the disease tends to come back in the same place uh, that it started. So patches tend to recur where they initially showed up. So uh, a lot more work to be done, but I just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> so. Um, Again, very nicely for us uh, coming into this field late and having you and rheumatoid arthritis in particular go before us. Uh, there are many drugs that have been developed against some of these targets. The most interesting one for us right now is a Betacept or CTLA-4IG. There's also a very nice paper uh, showing that you can block the NKG2D receptor in the NOD mouse model and prevent the development of diabetes. And there's now a drug in phase two for Crohn's disease by Novo Nordisk uh, against this target in humans that we hope we can convince them someday to let us try for alopecia areata. Um, so I just want to talk briefly about Abetacept because we're going to talk about CTLA-4 again. So this is the drug that's sold for rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it's a recombinant uh, here protein that actually competes for um, binding here. It, it scavenges or basically swamps out the co-stimulatory signal here and suppresses the T cell activation uh, on this side. So it's a soluble form of CTLA-4. That's what you just need to keep in mind. So again, compiling the genetic evidence like this, I think, makes an incredibly strong case. So this is an overlay of the signal at CTLA-4 for alopecia, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, and celiac disease. And when you overlay all those colors, I think you can see there's just overwhelming evidence for an effect here at CTLA-4, and a huge amount of work has actually been done. These are CTLA-4 candidate gene studies. You can see it's present in a wide range of autoimmune diseases. And these are the diseases who are now or have previously been on clinical trials using abetacept, using this drug, um, CTLA-4. Um, soluble uh, protein. So I think it's fair to say that um, this is well supported by the genetic evidence and it's something of course we'd love to try in our alopecia patients, um, uh, hopefully someday. So CTLA-4 is interesting for a number of reasons and I guess it, it must be well known to you of course because it's been so well studied in diabetes. But we're sort of taking a different look at it now and trying to ask if we can think about targeting it in a different way, uh, not by soluble protein or by antibody type therapy. We're going to have a challenge in alopecia areata, not just to, for safety, um, of course, as everyone else would, but also um, in terms of the risk-benefit ratio of using these powerful immunosuppressing drugs for what the FDA will probably tell us is a cosmetic disease. And so, we think a lot about using them as intralesional injections. So what if we could change the route of administration so they could be given locally? Our patients are accustomed to having injections in the scalp, so it's not such a foreign idea. But one of the things we'd like to think about is how we could do this in a smarter, better way. And the question really arises is, um, can we make a designer drug, if you will, taking advantage of what's known about CTLA-4? Uh, from the literature. And so I won't go into great detail, but there are four exons in CTLA-4. Uh, there are also four splice forms of CTLA-4 that have been reported at least in the mouse literature. So the full length contains all four exons. Uh, this one is called ligand independent. So exon 2 contains the ligand binding domain. This is the part that binds to, um, to the antigen presenting cell. 
And so when you skip exon 2, you make a protein that has only the transmembrane domain and a little bit of this intracellular part. You can also include the extracellular domain, but lose the transmembrane domain and make a soluble form of CTLA-4. And then you can make this aborted transcript that splices exon 1 to exon 4. So there's a little bit of confusion in the literature, at least as I've read it, about soluble CTLA-4. Soluble CTLA-4 is actually elevated in the serum of patients with many autoimmune diseases. I don't quite understand that because I would think soluble CTLA-4 should act like a beta sept and swamp out that signal, but it doesn't. It actually is, is negatively correlated, so I don't quite understand this part yet. But very nicely in the mouse, in the NOD mouse, Linda Wicker and her colleagues have beautifully demonstrated that there's a single SNP in the NOD mouse that determines the level of ligand-independent CTLA-4. And when she crosses in the resistant allele, or the SNP that's non-susceptible, she can actually rescue the NOD mouse by changing the splicing efficiency of this to this. So she makes more ligand-independent CTLA-4 by the intercross of a single SNP onto NOD. It's absolutely elegant. Uh, I was very impressed by that, but obviously so were others. So my dear friend Pat Iverson, who's at a biopharma company called AVI, uh, this is an antisense company. I'm just showing this as a quick pass-by with Pat's permission. This work has just been submitted for publication. Pat developed an antisense and placed it on exon 2 in CTLA-4 to drive expression of ligand-independent uh, CTLA-4 and actually can rescue the phenotype in the NOD mouse. So I think it's fair to say that this is an interesting therapeutic target. Um, we went back to the literature now, and I, again, this is new literature for me, but I was unable to find evidence in the literature of ligand-independent CTLA-4 in human T cells. Uh, so we went ahead and did that, and you have to squint your eyes and believe me, but there is a band here uh, that represents ligand-independent. It's okay, Robin, it's not that interesting. <laughs> Thank you. But it's here, it's here. Actually, all four of the splice forms are here, even the aborted transcript down here. Uh, and so um, we were delighted to see this, and now it gives us, I think, a rational basis to say, using uh, human cells, uh, can we actually switch the efficiency at this splice form and drive more expression of ligand-independent CTLA-4. What we're hoping to do now is do some deep sequencing across human CTLA-4 to find the same variants, uh, the, the uh, corresponding variants in the human gene that do the same thing that that variant does in the mouse uh, and see if we can't uh, switch splicite selection uh, and think about developing a similar strategy for antisense. This is something that Rudy's been helping us think about. We'd love to do this using a panel of patient-specific iPS cells in which we could know the genotype and even know the sequence of each of those individuals at CTLA-4 to use those cells as basically a screening panel for some of these antisense approaches and see if patients with different genotypes would respond with different efficiencies to manipulating some of these forms. This concept of using exon switching for immunoreceptors is gaining traction in the antisense field, and many of the immunoreceptors have a transmembrane domain that's in frame in the gene. So if you can skip that, you can make secreted TNF receptor. You can make lots of different types of uh, secreted receptors by blocking the uh, secretion by getting rid of the transmembrane domain. So there's some lovely review articles now talking about this concept as a way to manipulate these um, splice forms that actually may be more suitable for a disease like ours where they could potentially be given locally and without systemic effects. So um, this is something, again, we're planning to follow up. So I just want to close by broadening things out a little bit. 
Uh, again, you'll remember from the table that it wasn't just type 1 diabetes, but also celiac disease. Uh, and so, again, fortunately for us, not one but two amazing clinical centers exist on the campus, of course, the Berry Center, but also we have an incredible celiac disease center here who follow about 2,000 patients with celiac disease. And so they've also been incredibly generous to us uh, in helping us think about this, so much so that when we go talk to them, they say, oh, alopecia is just celiac disease of the scalp. Of course, now I think it's just diabetes of the scalp. <laughs> but nonetheless, there are incredible similarities between um, alopecia and celiac disease that are going to extend, I think, even more so because of the um, nature of the intestinal epithelium and some of the similarities to hair follicle. So if we combine, again, now adding celiac disease to our table, uh, you can see that those commonalities really jump out. Uh, this is just alopecia and diabetes. This is all three. So again, the same cast of characters coming up over and over again. Um, this extends down, again, to some of the substructures. So the HLA types are quite similar. Um, on the next slide, I'll show you that. And now we've begun to work together with the Celiac Center as well uh, at thinking about how to do a joint analysis, some meta-studies, et cetera. So this is a question that's asked of us a lot is, okay, that's all nice, but how many of your patients carry these HLAs? So in a, just a small sample of about 60 alopecia areata patients that we've now sequenced at HLA, uh, this is what we find. So about 40% of them carry at least one of these, and 78% carry uh, one of these. So I think the overlap is uh, significant and is going to continue to grow as we do more sequencing. Um, we've also started to explore the notion of biomarkers for this disease. Um, and so, uh, very sadly, again, for the few clinical trials that have been done, the endpoint is, does the patient grow their hair? Uh, this is not a very quantitative endpoint, and so if we try to experiment with some of these more sophisticated drugs, we are sure that we're going to be asked for more sophisticated biomarkers to follow what's going on. So we've started to ask, in serum of patients with alopecia areata, do we find evidence for um, any of the serum antibodies that have been reported? And we're just trying to do this now for the diabetes antibodies. Um, but at least for the main celiac antibodies, about 8 or 9% of our patients uh, have uh, the presence of those antibodies in their skin. Uh, this is the um, anti-citrullinated peptide antibody for RA. And again, you can see there's some uh, evidence here. Um, there are lots of anecdotal reports of alopecia patients who go on a gluten-free diet and grow their hair back. Uh, there are lots of RA patients who go on gluten-free diet and say that their RA gets better. So I think, again, there will be some connection underlying all this, and maybe there's even an endophenotype or a subgroup of alopecia patients who may be even more closely linked uh, via some of these markers. And again, we're very grateful for the folks over in the Celiac Center. Uh, just a last slide, and this one's hot off the press. Um, so just yesterday, uh, together with Ben Tycho, Raphael, and Lori Sassel, who I think is here, we submitted a DP3 grant to really begin to delve deeply into the epigenetics of type 1 diabetes. And so um, Robin and Ellen and their colleagues were incredibly helpful to us in uh, getting us this uh, cohort of patients on which we ran this, this preliminary data. And so you can see here, uh, maybe you can, but actually it's better that you can't read it because you can see the colors. So on the left are normal T cells, and on the right are 
type 1 diabetes T cells, and you can see that they cluster together, so the red genes go with red genes and diabetes, and the blue go with blue in the controls. Um, this is a very nice, what we call hierarchical clustering, means the samples sort themselves out into these two groups. Uh, and you can't read them, but there are actually several very interesting uh, target genes here that demonstrate differential methylation, suggesting that those genes will be differentially expressed in the T cells. These are specifically in the T cells of patients with type 1 diabetes. Um, the reason that's interesting to me, among others, is that there are a couple of papers in the literature that have done this on PBMCs, and if you compare those lists to the T cell lists, they're unrecognizable. So I think it gives really strong credence to the fact that you need to define the cell type you're looking in very carefully, and in this case, I think the fact that we fractionated on T cells really gave us some beautiful data. This group is now expanded and mixed with some celiac samples and some Down syndrome samples that came from the Celiac Center and from Nicole. And again, you can see that uh, on the right are the controls, and on the left are now the groupings of the patients. And even at that level, there seem to be some common signals. So I think with Ben's help, because he's, uh, those of you that might not know Ben, he's a world leader in epigenetics research uh, and has really helped guide us through this new way of thinking about this. But I think um, there'll be a lot here that's fruitful for us and something that we hope will be um, to be developed in the future. Lori is taking the lead on the epigenetics in the end organ in type 1 diabetes. I, of course, will be doing the same thing in parallel in the hair follicle, uh, not, of course, in the DP3 gram, but separately. And we're hoping, again, that by combining a view of the immune cells with the target organ cells, that maybe we can uh, find some <coughs> insights that might not be otherwise obvious. <coughs> I'm sorry. I'll just close by saying that we've got great plans. We would love to be on par with you and have an alopecia center here at Columbia that's equally vibrant. And so we wrote a grant last year with Sankar Ghosh and Raphael Kleins to actually try and get an AA cord, a center for translational research uh, on alopecia areata. Uh, we have to resubmit again this year, but nonetheless, uh, our goal is to um, really help to raise awareness about alopecia, and as Robin mentioned, now that the Celiac Center and the Diabetes Center have started asking their questions differently, a patient doesn't usually know that their hair loss is autoimmune. So if you say, do you have an autoimmune disease, they'll tell you the other autoimmune disease, but they won't say they have hair loss. And, and sometimes even if you say, do you lose your hair, they'll think, oh, well, now pattern baldness or something else. If you say, do you lose your hair in circles, they'll say, oh, I do, my dog does, my cousin does, everyone does. So, <laughs> And this has become true in the celiac center as well. So I think just learning how to ask these questions, and now with Robin's help, being able to query the uh, type 1 diabetes exchange uh, population for the presence of alopecia, I think we're going to see even more of it. And of course, we'd love to study those patients with more than one of the diseases to see if they have enriched genetics. And I'd love to be able to come back in a year and say that we have a similar center for alopecia areata. So I just want to close uh, and say that I know this conference usually goes till 10.30, but I actually have a date to meet John Todd downtown because he's speaking this afternoon and he's agreed to give me half an hour uh, of his time this morning to talk about how we might think about doing a proper joint analysis of our patients uh, combined with some of the other diseases, and that's an area that he and Robert Plant and others have really begun to mine. And here you can see it's been done for celiac and type 1, and again, it uh, looks very much like the list I showed you in our crude way of doing it for type 1 and alopecia, but this is where we'd like to be. 
uh, in a few months from now. So I'll just close by thanking uh, many of you who are here in the room for welcoming us so warmly as we um, uh, sort of wander through this brave new world for us. Uh, my colleagues at the AA Registry who've collected the patients, Raphael for again uh, really welcoming us a year ago and has been an incredibly uh, active collaborator with us this whole year, and Lynn Petikova, who's the student who did almost all of this work, as uh, a PhD student in the School of Public Health here at Columbia, um, and I think has a great future in autoimmune genetics, which is where she wants to stay. So I'll thank you again for having me, and be happy to take questions. Thanks. Tried to ask some of the folks who have used it in RA to say, did you, know, did you have anybody on trial that had alopecia areata, or did they report that their hair grew? We can't seem to see that it was included on anyone's case report forms, or so it doesn't seem like it was captured, which is really that would be nice. <laughs> that would be great. It's out there. I'm sure it's out there with so many trials ongoing and that have been done. It must have been noticed. It just hasn't really come out yet. The thing that we were shocked about, and I didn't mention, is that 10 years ago, John Sundberg at the Jackson Labs for, I don't know why, um, before the genetics came, long before it, he actually treated the alopecia C3H mouse with CTLA4IG, and it cures the disease in the alopecia mouse as well. So there's very nice preclinical data. Um, there. And I, again, I don't know why he did it. It's buried in a review article. I just told him he needs to republish it so that the world can see it, because we need it for convincing the FDA. But it does, it does very well in the alopecia mouse. Well, <laughs> four or five percent? It's actually not so much. So we have autoimmune thyroid disease in the alopecia patients, which is a little more common. It's about 10%. Uh, but it's also, what is your percent? 14 for that? 14. So we didn't have a lot of genetic hits for thyroid disease yet, though. So, and vitiligo is also about 4% in our patients. Celiac is probably going to be higher, I think about 8%. So, so I have two questions. Okay. One, in the We've tried to, to do it several different ways, and um, I have to say we failed using every approach that we tried. Um, we've been told by the statistical people that because we have too many hits, they keep telling us that it's hard to condition on all those variables to come up with the right number. I want that number because it would help us to, <laughs> to make a case, but so far nobody's been able to tell me how to do it with the, the number of signals that we have. They say there are too many to come up with a meaningful... Yeah, exactly. They keep saying when you have 3,000, come back and we'll try again. The so I don't know. The is the ULDP3 mm -hmm. and the NKG, those uh, that are, look like they're at least cell autonomous in the follicle, mm -hmm. I guess there are two possibilities. They're there doing what they do in other parts of the immune system. They're, 
hair follicles are not as easy as they look in terms of access, so they're actually Im immune privileged. So they're one of the few immune privileged sites in the body because you basically have a foreign body stuck in your skin all the time. So you know if you step on a hair and it goes into your skin, it hurts. You get irritation until you pull it out. That doesn't happen with the hair on your head because it's cloaked in, in lots of things that confer, quote, immune privilege. So there's a group of people that believe alopecia starts as a, quote, breakdown of immune privilege, potentially with the NKG2D ligand being one of the things that goes on. Um, there's a movement now to do the microbiome of the hair follicle. Um, it's been done for skin on different body sites as part of the initial five sites that were done, gut, skin, I can't remember the others, but um, that, but now there's, we'll hopefully be collaborating with the NIH group to do microbiome on plucked hairs uh, to see if there's actually different flora in patients with alopecia areata than patients without. Um, I don't have a good explanation, maybe Len does, for what those signals might be doing there. Um, the thing that shocks me is that they can have sustained expression, in my head at least, long after the disease seems to have resolved. So. I guess the paradigm is that in infection or during danger, they come on, they do their job, they attract the immune system, and they should go back off. And that doesn't seem to be happening either with us or with the other three diseases. So, can steroids Don't know that anyone's left. I, I don't know that that's in the literature, but. ULBP3s are not very well studied. Most of the work that's done on the ligands is done on MIC-A and MIC-B. These are sort of not very widely the studied. In mice, do they show the sex dimorphism that you see in the NOD, or do you get it in both? No, you get it in both genders um, after about a year, and only at 15%, which is really hard to work with. So we use a grafting model where we can take, once a mouse gets affected, we can take that mouse's skin and graft it onto like eight or 10 recipient susceptible mice, and all of those will develop disease in about a month. So it's not perfect, but at least it speeds things up a little bit. If not, we'd be waiting forever. We get the opposite question, which is now that I have alopecia, am I going to get diabetes or am I going to get celiac or what should I be doing not to get those things? And again, I don't have a, a great answer for any of that except that you know it's been known for a long time that, al that autoimmune diseases cluster in families, so I'm not sure there's any great news about this that would alarm, should alarm people. And do you think that the steroids Most people, I, of course, had steroids, you know, like crazy when I was a patient, <laughs> but um, I think it, it's, uh, it's about 50-50. Some people say it just relapses and comes and goes as it wants. Other people use a topical steroid foam throughout the whole thing. Some people refuse to get injections and they do just fine. So again, it's really the only tool that the dermatologist had at this point. So um, they'll use it when asked to, but most of them will say, we don't know if it's going to work. We can try. This is the only thing we have. So. That's what I thought it was. Gonna say. <laughs> I thought that's where you were going with that. <laughs> 
Exactly. That's the only reason the immunologists call me back is that picture. If they didn't, they would. We're hoping to find out. Right. 